Today's episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Tracker. Tracker is finding more than a million misplaced items each day. Order yours and never lose anything again. Listeners to this show get a free Tracker Bravo with any order. Go to thetracker.com and enter promo code HISTORY. The hardest thing you'll ever have to find is their website. Go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code HISTORY for your free Tracker Bravo with any order. Again, that's thetracker.com, promo code HISTORY. Deep in the back of your mind, you've always had the feeling that there's something strange about reality. There is. Cyrenoid, death mushroom, nanoparticle, mechanical messiah, fist punch evolution. On our award-winning science podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we examine neurological quandaries, cosmic mysteries, evolutionary marvels, and our transhuman future. New episodes come out Tuesdays and Thursdays on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcast. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And it's Halloween, Tracy. I know. Hooray! It's the best day of the year. Uh, And today, to celebrate Halloween, we're going to talk about a history mystery. It's got everything. It's got... Uh, a, a mystery, a mystery body. It's got witches. It's got espionage. <laughs> uh, it's got everything, and it's never been solved. Though, as we get to the end of the episode, we're going to get into some interesting math that tries to sort out the situation. But I don't want to spoil any of that, so let's just hop right in. So, in the 1940s, a grisly discovery was made in a tree in Worcestershire, England, on April 18th of 1943. Four teenage boys were looking for birds' nests, and they sent the best climber up an elm tree. In the hollow of the tree, he did not find a bird's nest. He found a skull. Initially, he thought it might be an animal skull, but when he pulled it from its place in the tree, he realized, no, it was a human skull. And there was also a a little bit of decomposing flesh still attached to the skull, as well as a patch of hair. And this skull had distinctive teeth. They were crooked, and there was sort of a what looked what looks in pictures like almost a pronounced overbite, but also some lower jaw um, deformation. The boys, whose names were Robert Hart, Thomas Willits, Bob Farmer, and Fred Payne, were terrified. They were also really worried that they were going to get in trouble because they had been trespassing in Hagley Woods. This estate, which was near Birmingham, was private. They had no permission to be in there looking for nests. They had also been hunting rabbits, so they'd basically been poaching, and they had been doing all of that that day with no permission. So the boys promised each other that they would keep it a secret. They put the skull back in its spot in the tree, and then they left. But the youngest boy of that group, Tommy Willits, did not, in fact, keep their secret. He was really deeply upset by the discovery, and he eventually confessed his troubles to his father. And his father immediately contacted police, and of course, an investigation began. When the police examined this elm tree, they found not only the skull, but also additional remains, including the majority of the skeleton. There were also pieces of clothing, a wedding band, and a single shoe with a crepe sole. The skeletal remains of one of this body's hands were also found buried near the tree. 
Examination of the remains by a pathologist concluded that the skeleton was a woman who had been between 35 and 40 when she died. She was 5 feet or 1.5 meters tall, brunette, and had probably given birth at some point. Another man involved in the investigation was forensic biologist Dr. John Lund, who at the age of 101 told the BBC radio show Punt P.I. about his examination of the remains. That uh, interview happened in 2015. So he had been working under James Webster at the West Midlands Forensic Science Laboratory, and he kept notes on the case. The body arrived at his lab on April 20th, 1943, two days after it had been discovered. The bones had absolutely no remaining flesh. The hair that was attached to the skull was quite fragile, but he determined that it had not been chemically treated with color or any kind of curling solution. And the woman, Webster and Lund concluded, had been asphyxiated by a piece of taffeta that had been shoved in her throat. Additionally, it was believed that the body had been hidden in the tree while it was still warm, feet first, and that it had been there for about a year and a half, placing her death somewhere around October of 1941. Efforts started immediately to try to identify what appeared to be the victim of a murder. Missing persons reports were combed through for anybody who might line up with this mystery discovery. There were detailed descriptions of what she had probably been wearing based on what Webster had been able to extrapolate from the shoe and the clothing remains that had been collected. The, there was a whole reference through the dental records with dentists from all around Great Britain. But because of the war, missing persons records were something of a mess at this point. But even so, all known listings were reviewed for a possible connection. Literally thousands and thousands of records. But nothing matched. No results with dental dental records either, despite the fact that she had some unique features, including that jaw deformity and a recently pulled tooth uh, that had, had been pulled shortly before she had died. And they really cast a wide net by placing this information in dental journals, hoping that they would find a dentist that recognized any of this information. But the case went cold. A small clue finally came from a man who had been working in management at one of the area's industrial companies. He had reported to police in July 1941 that he was walking to his home near Hagley Wood and he heard a scream. Another person, a teacher who was also on the path but coming in the opposite direction, had confirmed that he too had heard this screaming. And police were called to the scene at the time that these two men heard this scream, which would have been close enough to the October death estimate to have been a possible connection to the murder. But police in 1941 found nothing where the two men had heard the woman screaming, and they found nothing when they revisited the scene in 1943 after reviewing that 1941 report. Just as the case seemed to be running entirely cold in December of 1943, odd graffiti started popping up in the area. Scrawled in various places were the words, Who put Bella down the witch elm? There were actually a lot of vari- variations on the phrase, including who put Lou Bella down the witch elm and who put Bella in the witch elm. There were also some more in- instances of graffiti that strayed from this question uh, format and said things more like Hagley Wood Bella. 
And as a point of note, as we say this, we're not saying which here, uh, in the sense you might be thinking, what with this being Halloween. When we say witch elm, the spelling is W-Y-C-H. That's a tree, also known as a Scots elm. However, uh, in several things that I read, there were people that were adamant that this was in fact not a witch elm, but another type of elm that's often mistaken for one. Just wanted to include that in the interest of horticultural history <laughs> and to clarify that it is not witches in the Halloweeny sense at this point. It is creepy though. Yeah. Even without that spelling difference, still creepy. These graffiti messages appeared to be the work of a single person. They were all written in the same type of chalk in block letters, uh, and it was considered that they maybe were just somebody trying to play a prank. But there had been no leads in the case that had actually panned out up to that point. So these bizarre missives opened up two new lines of investigation. Number one, was there really someone named Bella who might be involved in this body that had been found in Hagley Woods? And number two, who was the artist behind the graffiti? And did they actually know something about the murder? But nothing, not the name Bella, not the dental records, not the hunt for the graffiti artist seemed to lead to any actual information. This woman seemed to be entirely untraceable. And as the months dragged into years, all kinds of other theories started to pop up about the identity of this woman in the tree. And before we get to those theories that started popping up uh, in an effort to explain the skeleton in Hagley Woods, let's take a brief uh, break and we'll have a word from one of our sponsors. You know that awesome feeling you get when you can just get stuff done with a click of your mouse and it's fast and convenient? It's a good feeling. It's a good feeling. And now you can do the same thing with your shipping and mailing. You can do it without even leaving your desk thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or your Mac into your own personal post office, which never closes. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer, and then you just hand that off to your fabulous mail carrier, or you drop it in a box, and you're done. You'll never have to go to the post office again. It is super convenient. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code, which is STUFF, to get a special offer that will entitle you to a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including both postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on that microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. So, uh, we promised you a little witchiness at the beginning in the actual witch sense, not in the uh, W-Y-C-H tree sense. So we're getting there. Uh, Professor Margaret Murray of University College London, who was an anthropologist, Egyptologist, archaeologist, and folklorist, put forth the theory that Bella, as she had at that point become known thanks to that graffiti, had been the victim of a ritualistic occult murder. Uh, Murray's evidence to support this theory was the fact that the hand bones had been found away from the body. And she believed that the ceremony that had claimed Bella's life which is one which is called the Hand of Glory, in which the hand cut from the victim could be used for divining or protection as part of the practice of witchcraft. And the sensational nature of this idea really took hold in both the press and the public imagination. This reminds me of the satanic ritual abuse panic. It is absolutely the same thing. That that was not (laughs) really founded in reality. So... When another murder victim was discovered in a neighboring village, this one, a man who was pinned to the ground with a pitchfork, people started linking the two deaths, even though it had been two years between the two. 
Scotland Yard, who was spurred on by Margaret Murray, started investigating this witchcraft angle because there had been no other new leads in the case. And as with all the other leads, it got them nowhere. Had no real information that was gathered as a result of Murray's theories. And as a side note, while uh, Margaret Murray was famous for a time in the early 20th century as an expert, and I should put that in the air quotes, on witchcraft, most of her writings on the subject were controversial at the time, and they were eventually debunked, and she was largely discredited. She is actually on my short list for an episode all her own, but uh, she was basically kind of making stuff up. Yeah, the first time I read through this outline, I got to this description of her purported satanic, not satanic, but like her purported ritualistic occult murderer. And I was like, really? (laughs) Really, actual anthropologist for real? Did you did you just make this up? Like what? Really? You know, she used logic that made sense to her. Uh, But I I don't know that she was uh, kind of fabricating these in an effort to be um to be misleading or sensationalist, I think she might have believed them. But I will do more research on her, perhaps in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that will be an October episode next year. I maybe can't wait till then, but we'll oh, see sure. That's cool, too, then. <laughs> so 10 years after that initial grisly discovery in the tree, there was another possibility that came to light. This time, a woman going by the name Anna from Claverly contacted the press in a letter she was responding to a series of articles that had been been written in 1953 about the murder, saying she knew who had killed Bella. Anna's claim was that Bella had, in fact, been part of an espionage play gone wrong. And the letter read, Finish your articles regarding the witch elm crime by all means. They are interesting to your readers, but you will never solve the mystery. The one person who could give the answer is now beyond the jurisdiction of earthly courts. Much as I hate having to use a nom de plume, I think you would appreciate it if you know me. The only clues I can give you are that the person responsible for the crime died insane in 1942 and that the victim was Dutch and arrived illegally in England about 1941. I have no wish to recall any more. Anna's story cast Bella as a Dutch woman who was passing information from a British officer to a trapeze artist who appeared in local theatrical productions. That trapeze artist would then pass that intel on to the Germans. Bella in the story had become too knowledgeable about this chain of of information, and she was killed because of that knowledge. And then her body was taken to Hagley Woods, where it was hidden in the tree. Of course, this fleshing out of the story past that initial letter came because uh, the police got involved, of course, once the press got this letter uh, and they questioned her. Because the area around Worcestershire was home to a number of munitions factories during World War II, it had been scrutinized by the Nazis for information during the war. It had also been a target. So authorities did pursue this new German spy ring angle with some level of vigor. Some aspects of Anna's story checked out. There had been a British man connected to a German spy ring in the area, but he had died in Stafford Mental Hospital in 1942. And as it turned out, that man was related to Anna. Anna's real name was Una Mossop. Una had, she told police, been married to Jack Mossop, and he had confessed the murder to her before his death. It was her understanding that he, along with a Dutch man named Van Ralt, who was also involved, meant to scare this woman by leaving her in the tree when she was passed out because she was inebriated. They did not actually intend to kill her. 
Yeah, the idea was that she would wake up stuck in this tree and see the error of her ways in being foolish uh, and would straighten up and act right. Uh, the police were unable to locate this Van Ralt character, and it appears that they sort of abandoned the trail there. Uh, years later, however, another woman named Judith O'Donovan told police and investigators that she was Jack Mossop's sort of distant cousin. I think her he might have been her husband's cousin. And that their entire family basically knew that Jack had been a traitor and that he had been connected to a woman's death. So it sort of supported this spiring idea uh, and the fact that he may have been connected to the woman in the Witch Elm. Another decade passed before another theory emerged, and this one kind of combined the previous two notions. In 1968, a book called Murder by Witchcraft was published, written by David McCormick. And McCormick penned an explanatory narrative in which the woman from the tree had been a Nazi spy named Clarabella, who was also an occultist. According to McCormick, who said that he had been able to look at German intelligence reports uh, that listed the woman by her code name, she was called Clara. His assertion was that the Bella in the graffiti was referencing Clara Bella. McCormick's book indicated that Clara had been sent into the county of West Midlands by parachute in 1941, but that she was never heard from again. Of course, these roads all proved to be fruitless, just like all the others had, in terms of churning up any real information on the case at the time. Three full decades after McCormick's book was released, the case of Bella's identity once again gained attention. And at this time, pieces of the puzzle started to come together in the minds of interested parties. For one, uh, when the case closed, which was actually in 2005, uh, the case file was published. And in it, there was a mention of a search for Bella's body to be exhumed so that DNA evidence could be gathered, because that would certainly be helpful. But that search was for her body was unsuccessful. It turns out that this failure to find her body was in part because they had been looking in completely the wrong location. It had been presumed that Bella had been buried locally, but in fact, her remains had gone to the University of Birmingham to a colleague of the original pathologist in the case for additional testing. And that was a detail that had sort of been lost in the 60-some years since the case had been active before it was closed in 2005. And unfortunately, the skeletal remains disappeared from the university's records and their lab, uh, lost forever to time. And any records from the University of Birmingham about any testing that was done on those remains have also vanished. This has led to some speculation of a cover-up, uh, but it could also just be really terrible bookkeeping. Yeah, I'm going to hold out hope that one day it will be one of those, look what we found in our own collection. Yeah. This <laughs> I, set I of human of remains that nobody well, labeled correctly. And the thing to keep in mind, too, um, and I know this from my years working in the library, is that uh, there were things that happened during wartime that really messed up record keeping. You know, it wasn't necessarily that people were lazy or trying to cover anything up. There was just there were times when an air raid would happen and everything mm-hmm. would be shuffled around and stuff got lost. Yeah. Well, and even if you are really careful, human beings still make errors. <laughs> And if you have a gigantic collection and are still 99% accurate, that's a bunch of errors. Anyway, coming up, we're going to talk about an MI5 file that might actually give some weight to the narrative that McCormick had, had reconstructed. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from one of our awesome sponsors. 
Today's sponsor is MeUndies.com. And you know, whether you're wearing a suit or sweats, uh, you're probably spending a lot of time in your underwear. And often, instead of making a statement, that underwear is kind of boring. MeUndies is here to change that. I would just like to say their October pattern is adorable. Best thing ever. Yes. Uh, it, it's super. It's, I, I was so excited when I got mine. I texted Holly immediately about underwear. Every pair of MeUndies is made from sustainably sourced modal. It's a fabric that is twice as soft as cotton. Nothing can describe the fit and feel of MeUndies. And once you try them on, you will understand why they are called the world's most comfortable underwear. If you don't love your first pair, they are free, no questions asked. And there are dozens of styles in limited edition prints. So it's always something new. Shipping is free in the U.S. and Canada. And you can save up to $8 a pair with the MeUndies subscription plan. Get the subscription or a single pair and get 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash history. That's MeUndies.com slash history for 20% off your first order. One more time, MeUndies.com slash history. So another bit of information that also shed light on this possibility that McCormick's theory had some truth to it. Uh, a declassified file in the British National Archives on Gestapo agent Joseph Jacobs, who was an inexperienced, undertrained agent that was sent to gather information on weather patterns in the London area. Jacobs had parachuted into Cambridgeshire in 1941, broken his ankle in the drop, and was arrested by the Home Guard, which was a World War II defense organization that was part of the British Army. One of the items that Jacobs was carrying when the home guard apprehended him was a photograph. That photo was a picture of a woman named Clara Bowerly, a singer and film actress that Jacobs said was also his paramour. He also told his captors that Clara Bowerly was a Nazi secret agent and was supposed to parachute into West Midlands and that the two of them were supposed to have made contact. Jacobs was executed by firing squad in the late summer of 1941, and this turned out to be the last execution at the Tower of London. Uh, he could also easily be an episode subject on his own. These MI5 records on Jacobs included an investigation of Bowerly. She was born in 1906, meaning that in 1941 she would have been 35, which was the right age to fit the pathology report of the Witch Elm victim. And she did work in music halls in the West Midland area for two years before World War II began. And she learned to speak English with no trace of a German accent. When the woman who had been calling herself Anna contacted the police in the 1950s, claiming to have knowledge of the crime, she had mentioned a music hall in the information that she gave to the police. And while this might seem to tidily wrap up the identity of Bella quite nicely, because the pieces do seem to fit together, uh, Joseph Jacobs' granddaughter, who has long examined the details of her grandfather's life, actually obtained a death certificate for Clara Bowerly, indicating that, in fact, she died in Berlin in December 1942 of veronal poisoning, i.e. not stuffed into a tree in England. Of course, gossip churned up a huge a variety of other possibilities about Bella's identity. She might have taken shelter in the tree during an air raid and gotten stuck. She might have been murdered by a lover and clumsily hidden in the tree. She may have been a traveler or a Romani who was killed out of mere suspicion. And there was even a lead that, at least in terms of plausibility, seems fairly valid. So on April 7th of 1944, a sex worker from Birmingham told police that a woman that she knew had gone missing on Hagley Road or in that area three years earlier. And that woman's name was Bella. 
Uh, if this information garnered follow-up from the police, it does not appear to have gotten much traction. Incidentally, this whole graffiti of who put Bella in the witch elm has continued in the seven decades since the murder was discovered. There's an obelisk in Hagley Park called the Witchbury Obelisk, and it's been the most frequently tagged location since the 1970s. Presumably, at this point, it's kids trying to be spooky, and the spelling has changed from W-Y-C-H to W-I-T-C-H. It's definitely not somebody trying to communicate a kind of clue about the unsolved murder case at this point. It is like Kilroy was here, but... Exactly. And it's very possible that it never was anything but people pulling pranks, but we just don't know. Uh, in 2014, a statistical analysis of all of the known data in the Hagley Woods murder uh, was done by researchers Norman Fenton and Martin Neal using Bayesian analysis, and they determined a number of things. They, um, they're they actually in that BBC uh, radio uh, piece that we mentioned earlier, but then they also wrote a paper separately where they explain it all, and that thing is fabulous. Um, so it'll be in the show notes, but... The first thing that they determined is that there is a 99% probability that the cause of death was criminal. That one is the completely unsurprising. Correct. Uh, there's a 97% probability that Bella was not British, less than 2% chance that she was Dutch, and an 18% chance that she was German. There is a 93% probability that Bella was still alive when she was put in the tree. That's awful. That kind of holds with that whole story that the men had put her there to scare her and that Mm -hmm. she had somehow become stuck. There's a 33% possibility that Jack Mossop was involved in her death and 7% that it was some kind of intelligence service. In order to increase that probability to a 95% chance that Mossop was involved, the researcher's model would have required four additional witnesses in addition to Una Mossop and his cousin Judith. And there is a 25% probability that Bella was a spy and a 16% uh, probability that she was a prostitute. In their paper on this study, the researchers were very clear that there are lots of variables that can qu- really quickly change the whole statistical picture. For example, they're working under the assumption that police involved in the investigation really did exhaust all the leads in each instance where they felt like there was a dead end. If they left a stone unturned here or there, then the model shifts significantly. Additionally, there's the credibility of various witnesses. Yeah, if you um, increase or decrease the credibility rating of various witnesses, that model changes really quickly as well. But of course, all of those numbers do not settle this crime conclusively, and Bella's story remains a mystery. And considering the age of the case, it is unlikely that this murder will ever be solved unless, as Tracy mentioned earlier, the remains uh, or the university lab files suddenly turn up. So that is our spooky unsolved mystery for Halloween. Uh, and we hope yours is safe and that you do not end up in a tree stuck Please in Please don't. Way. I mean, would, you can climb a tree safely if you want to do that. <laughs> I uh, have never climbed a tree. Really? Yeah. Uh, they're, dirty and I'm sca- they're dirty and I'm scared. That's the bottom line. Uh, my mother had very clear rules about how large the branch could be for us to safely climb the tree. Ah. Uh, and, and if we climbed up into branches that were narrower than that, I think it had to be at least as uh, 
as big as our arm. I can't remember if it was our arm or our leg. There was a body part that we had to compare before we put our weight on any tree limb. Yeah, my mother. My mother is very concerned with safety. I've had many friends through the years who are big into tree climbing, and they always look at me like I'm some sort of mutant when I'm like I've never climbed a tree, and I feel no urge to change that. (laughs) That's fine. Do you have some listener mail, though? I do. I have three pieces of listener mail, but they're brief. Uh, the first one comes from our listener, Kaylee. She sent us a lovely parcel. She says, hi, ladies. I've been a longtime listener to the podcast, and I finally decided to write in after the John Brown Raid episode. I am a museum curator for the National Park Service and currently work in Harper's Ferry. What? I moved here. Yeah, how great is that? I, moved I read here all our email, but I forgot this one. Well, this oh, wasn't an parcel. email. It's a parcel. That's why you haven't seen it. Uh... I moved here earlier this year from Georgia. I was so excited to listen to the episode because it gave me more insight than I had already gathered. Keep doing what you do. I enjoy every episode as it gets me through the mundane tasks at work. Stay fabulous, Kaylee. And Kaylee also sent us cool um, magnets and uh, state quarters. She sent us a lovely little parcel. Thank you, Kaylee. That's the coolest. That's awesome. That's really cool. And then uh, I have two emails from our very recent podcast on Vincent Price. The first one says, hi, ladies. I listened to your recent Victoria Price interview, and I was delighted to hear her mention that someone had emailed her about their Vincent Price cooking blog, because that someone was me. Uh, my partner and I have been huge fans of Vincent Price since childhood, and we love to cook, so we decided to do 31 days of Vincent Price cooking for the month of October. It seemed fitting. Check out the blog if you would like, and let me know if you've tried any of the recipes we've tried or any we haven't that you recommend. That blog can be found at 31daysofvincentrecipes.tumblr dot com. Uh, loved the interview with Victoria. Isn't she just incredible? The answer to that is yes. Um, she's amazing. So I did look at their blog and they're, oh, they're doing such lovely little things. They're making yummy stuff. It makes me want to bake all the tarts because he has a lot of tarts in that book. My favorite is still the lobster bisque. It's very heavy and rich, but it's so delicious. Uh, my next one is a fun story about Vincent Price from someone. Uh, we've had a couple people mention that they've seen him lecture uh, or that they ran into him at some point in their lives. And this one was very sweet. So it comes from our listener, Babette. She says, your interview with Victoria Price was wonderful, and it reminded me of my Vincent Price story. In 1968, I was on an eighth grade trip into New York City, and we were allowed to scatter once we were at the Whitney Museum of Modern Art. And I was with a friend near a very modern piece of art, a boulder surrounded by a series of concentric circles of different types of stone granite. I noticed a very tall and distinguished man in the room who looked oh so familiar, but I wasn't sure who he was. My friend, who probably recognized him, goaded me to get his autograph, but I still wasn't sure who he was, so I did what any brave but confused teen would do. I walked up to him and I said, who are you? (laughs) He smiled and bent at the waist until he was closer to my height of 5'4", and in his remarkable deep voice, he practically sang, why? And as soon as I heard that voice, I knew exactly who he was, and I asked for his autograph, which he gave me, written in very beautiful script. Vincent Price was my first celebrity signing slash autograph and a thrill that I will never forget. That's the sweetest story. I love that story. Yeah, we, I mean, on on social media, we've gotten so many cute, like, sort of brief stories. Uh, One person had tweeted at me and said that a a friend that she knows uh, lived not far from him when she was a girl, and he would sometimes bring cookies out to the kids at the bus stop while they waited. Like, there are just so many cute little stories that have come up that it just is delightful. 
Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us across social media as Missed in History. That's at Twitter at Missed in History, Facebook.com slash Missed in History, Instagram at Missed in History, uh, Missed in History.tumblr.com, and on Pinterest.com slash Missed in History. If you would like to come to our parent site, HowStuffWorks, you can type almost anything that you can think of in the search bar and you will get a load of content to delight and entertain yourself. You can also visit Tracy and me at MissedInHistory.com where we have all of our old episodes, the entire archive of the show, as well as show notes from uh, the last several years that Tracy and I have been on the show and the occasional other goodies. So come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com.